see if I can't find one of those tapes for mornings when I'm tired and I can put a uh, Howard Hendricks or a Swindoll tape or something and I can sit up here and move my mouth. A number of weeks ago I uh, talked about a number of heresies that are uh, held within the church, within the evangelical church. They're deep-seated ideas which we think are, are scriptural, but which on closer uh, uh, investigation really appear to be contrary to the Word of God. One of those is the idea that the church is a building. Now that's a very wide, widely held heresy and one which we perpetuate in our in our terminology. I catch myself periodically saying to Carolyn, I have to run down to the church to pick up something. And what I mean is I need to go down to the church building. And uh, on that particular occasion, there may not be anyone here at the church building, and so that's not the church. That's simply a building. As I mentioned then, we have a sign out front that really continues to perpetuate that error. It says, Cole Community Church, as though this building is a church. It's not. The church is people, God's people. Buildings are necessary, and we're right now involved in a building program which we feel is essential. But uh, we need to keep our priorities straight. The church is people, God's people in the world. Another of these heresies we talked about is the idea that the church is the clergy. It's the pastor. And if you just get the right kind of pastor and he's a strong enough leader, then you've got a successful church. But again, as we've seen, uh, from our studies in 1 Corinthians, the church is not the pastor, it's not the clergy. The church is the people of God, out in the world, behaving as Christ behaves in the world. And then thirdly, the third heresy, this idea that the church is meetings. Whenever the church gathers in a meeting, then that's the church. And when the church is dispersed throughout the world, then that's not the church. But again, as we've seen, the church is the church wherever it is, whether it's a symbol here or out in the world. Now, as we've seen, I think, from these chapters in 1 Corinthians, those, uh, those are untruths, untruths. They're simply not, uh, they don't correspond to Scripture. The church is God's people in the world behaving as Jesus Christ behaved. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We, we are like Christ. We do what Christ did. We behave as Christ behaved. We act as he act, acted in the world. That's the way the body of Christ is intended to function. If you want a good description of the church in action, it's found in the book of Luke, where Jesus went into a synagogue in Nazareth, and he took the scroll of Isaiah, and he began to read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, Jesus' task was to deliver people from guilt and fear and loneliness and the tyranny of, of a bad temper and, and a bad habits, set people, uh, set people free from the chains that, that bind them, to proclaim the good news of God's deliverance to the captives. That was, that was his ministry. And that likewise is ours. We gather to be built up as a body, to minister to one another and care for one another, and then we go out into the world 
to carry out the same ministry which, which Jesus had. We were talking around the table last Friday night about a recent uh, segment from 60 Minutes. I didn't see this particular program, but someone was telling me that uh, they were talking about a new scheme for deceit that had been developed by discos on the East Coast. They have a, a bank of, uh, of telephones, pay telephones in the basement, and in those telephone booths they have tapes which you can punch in with appropriate background noise. And if you want to call your mate and tell her that you've been, your car broke down on the highway and you won't be home for a couple of hours, you can punch in a tape and uh, you hear in the background the sounds of automobiles passing by. And uh, if women want to let their husbands know that they won't be home for a couple of hours, they punch in a supermarket tape and you can hear bottles clanking and people pushing baskets down the aisle and you can deceive your, your partner into believing that you're somewhere that you're not and then you can have... Uh, some time there in the disco all to yourself. Now the thing that struck us, I think, in discussing this particular issue is not that we ought to be scornful of people in the world who do this because we shouldn't. That's just a symptom. It just indicates where people are. The loneliness and the desperation of their lives and the desire for something more, anything, to fill the void in their life, even if it calls for deceit and, and uh, various uh, attempts to try to cover up what's really going on. Now that's some of you have been out of the world so long you've forgotten what it's like to be there. But that's what it's like out there. And we have, we have a message of deliverance to proclaim. Uh, we gather here to build ourselves up as a body of believers and then we go out into the world where Jesus was to proclaim deliverance. Now that's what we've been, been learning, I think, from these chapters in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn again to chapter 12 and continue our studies beginning with verse 12 of, of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For with one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, Paul begins with the reminder that the body of Christ is very much like our human bodies. And that's a very good analogy because we all have one. And periodically we look in the mirror and we're reminded of what the body of Christ is really like. I don't know if you've observed your body much lately, but it's essentially composed of two parts. There is this hairy knob up on our neck that we call our head. And then there is a torso with many members and parts. And Paul says, that's the way the body of Christ is. It has many members, different functions. There are fingers and toes, and ears and eyes and nose and feet. But it's all one body, one unit. It's not a number of different entities. It's one body with many members. And that's the way our body ought to function, in a cooperative fashion. When I got up this morning... Uh, parts of my body were protesting. They didn't want to uh, get with the program. But uh, I found that even though they were a real, little bit reluctant to function, they didn't completely let me down. The hand didn't say, I just refuse to cooperate this morning. I need more sack time. I will not be a part of the body today. Uh, no, that's not the way our bodies work. They work together. They cooperate with one another. They don't compete. Even if one member is hurting, 
and it's weak, and it needs help. The other members rush to its aid. See, they don't reject that part of the body. Uh, We need one another. That's the point that Paul is making. We're all members of the same body, one functioning body, and yet many members. And then as Paul goes on to tell us here in verse 13, that unity, that one body, is formed when we are all baptized with one spirit. Now what Paul is referring to here is something that was promised back in the Old Testament. The prophet Joel predicted that the time was coming when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just on the Jews, who were God's people chosen for a particular task. God chose the Jews to be the medium through which he uh, expressed his character to the world. And that was God's purpose for a period of time. But Joel predicted that the time is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and, and free. And that's what John the Baptist was talking about when he said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That was a reference to Joel's prophecy. When Messiah came, he would pour out the Spirit of God on all flesh. And then on the day of Pentecost, that's exactly what what happened. Because Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel, and he says, this is that which Joel predicted. The time has come. God has poured out his Spirit on all flesh. And all have been made to drink of that one Spirit. And you see, that's what places you in the body of Christ. The Lord Jesus has poured out his Spirit upon you, and the Spirit indwells you, so that now you are all part of the life of God. Everyone shares the same life. And you'll notice that he repeats this little word all. And this to a church that was split by dissension and and, uh, uh, hatred for one another, filled with carnality, characterized by every sin that you can imagine. And yet Paul says, you've all been filled with one spirit. You've all been baptized with one spirit. Now that's what makes us one body. And that's something that occurs whenever Jesus Christ becomes Lord. When you, uh, when you bend the knee to the Lord Jesus, when you make him Messiah and King in your life, then you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's not something that happens subsequent to salvation. That's not something that happens because you've prepared yourself spiritually in a special way. Paul says that's the common experience of all believers. We've all been made to drink of of one spirit. I'm sure you've had people ask you, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And your answer to that question ought to be yes, if you belong to Jesus Christ. You have. Because the constant statement of Scripture is that uh, we don't need to ask for anything more. God has already given us everything that we need to live life as God intended. All we need to do is lay hold of what we have. We have the Spirit of Jesus Christ within us. We have his power available to us to be what we need to be in every situation, to cope with every demand, to face into every hard situation, to love the unlovely, to be merciful to those who don't deserve it or appreciate it. We have the life of God within us. All of us, not people who have uh, been to, uh, merely people who have been to seminary or Bible school or who have been through Bible study fellowship or memorized all their navigator verses, but all of us 
who belong to Jesus Christ share the life of God. And we have everything that we need. We don't need to ask for anything more. We just need to lay hold of what we have and start living out the life of God in the world. I noticed the other day, to my deep sorrow, that the trolley cars in San Francisco are not going to run for the next six months because the cables uh, have gotten old and they're deteriorating, so they're tearing out the system and they're going to put in new cables so the trolley cars are operative. And uh, those uh, little vehicles used to be uh, just a lot of fun. I don't know if you've ever ridden on them, but you, you stand at the bottom of one of these uh, these horrific hills. You, you, it looks like you're looking straight up the side of a mountain, and you get on this little trolley car, and there's no mo- there's no motor in the trolley car. Uh, the man in the front just pulls a lever, and some apparatus underneath drips onto the uh, the cable underneath the street, and away goes the trolley car. In fact, they call the man who handles the uh, the lever, the grip man, because when he pulls back on the handle, this apparatus grips onto the cable, and the trolley car goes to the top of the hill. There's no power in that trolley car. All the power is in the cable. Now, I've often thought, when I rode those trolley cars, that's a beautiful illustration of what we have in Christ. All the power that's necessary to cope with any obstacle or any situation is already available to us. The cable runs all the time. All we have to do is lay hold of it. And you see, that's what Paul is saying. We can never say, I, I just don't have what it takes. I'm just worn out with trying. I can't love this person any longer. I can't live with this person any longer. I have to leave, or they have to leave. I can't be what God expects me to be. I can't share my faith. I can't counsel. I can't help anyone. I don't have anything to give. And you see, if we say that, we don't understand. Because we have the life of God within us that makes us adequate for anything. Our adequacy, Paul says, is from God who has made us adequate ministers of the new covenant. Now that's where Paul begins. He wants to assure us that we've all been baptized into this body and that's the basis of our strength and it's also the basis of our unity. He says we're one body whether we're Jews or Greeks. That is, all racial distinctions now are gone. We're still different, but the differences don't make any difference. The Jews couldn't stand the Greeks. They thought the Greeks were boorish and barbarian, and the Greeks didn't like the Jews because they thought they were snobs and they couldn't get along at all. Paul says, all those differences are gone. You're still Greeks. You're still Jews. You still have different lifestyles and interests and attitudes toward life, but Paul says, you're all one body. And today he says the same thing to us. It doesn't make any difference whether a believer is black or white or brown or whether he's from Idaho or California or where he's, wherever he's from. All those regional differences are gone. They may make us different. We may have different approaches to things. But different doesn't make any difference any longer because we're all one. We're one body. I remember a uh, number of years ago, probably 17, 18 years ago, um, I was working with a wilderness camping program at a, this church where I was serving, and we'd take kids up into the mountains for a week at a time. And I was introduced to a young man named Jaime Pellicer, who was a Jesuit priest from Chile. And uh, he was traveling through that part of California where I was living. And uh, Ray Stedman asked me if I would take Jaime up into the mountains with us 
with these uh, with these college and high school students that we were planning to take on this trip, because he was doing the sort of the same sort of thing down in Chile in the Andes. He was an evangelical believer. He loved the Lord and was true to the Scriptures, and uh, it was his practice to take young men and in the Catholic Church in Chile up into the mountains for a week at a time and they would study the scriptures together. Now, the only problem was Jaime couldn't speak any English and I couldn't speak any Spanish or whatever his language was and and we didn't we didn't have very much in common. He was a Catholic and I was a Protestant. And uh but we went together and we went up into the mountains and we spent the first two or three days just sort of grunting at each other and pointing to things and trying to figure out what the other one was saying. But uh, one day he was sitting out on a rock, and I noticed he was reading the scriptures, and I went out and sat by him, and he had a, a Greek New Testament in his hand, and he would read a verse, and he would look at me, and he'd smile and point to it, and I would smile back. And that was the one thing we had in common. That was really the only only thing we had in common, was our life around the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And all those differences didn't make a difference anymore. We were one body. And that's what Paul wants us to see. You're, uh, you're, the person who may be closest to you in terms of, of real relationship may be some pygmy in Africa with a bone in his nose. He's closer to you than your non-Christian next door neighbor who smells just like you do, you see. Those differences don't make any difference any longer. Paul says we're one. And we need to act as though we're one. And then in verses 14 and following, Paul elaborates on this theme, and you will notice as you read through these verses what he's doing. He takes one statement and he makes a statement and then he turns it over and looks at it another way and then turns it back again. Verse 14 says, For the body is not one member but many. And here his emphasis is on the diversity that you find within the body of Christ. We're all different. And he follows that theme through verse 19. And then in verse 20, he turns the phrase around. But now there are many members, but one body. He goes back to looking at us in terms of a unit again, a unity. So there is diversity and unity. One body, many members. And that's the emphasis that he wants to leave. Now his first um, word has to do with the diversity in the body, verses 14 through 19. And here, he has in mind the problem that many of us have with insignificance. We feel that we just don't matter. We may be Christians and therefore a part of the body of Christ, but we don't really have any part to play in that body. And it's this that Paul is concerned about in these verses. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Now, uh, it's very obvious from looking at your body that uh, you're many members. There aren't any big feet sitting out there, six-foot-tall feet or hands. I, I was going to, I, I didn't have the nerve, but I was going to have a couple sitting here 
uh, with a baby in a blanket and invite them to come up and we were going to dedicate their baby. And when they brought the baby out, it would be one big eye. And I was going to paint a football with an eye on it, you know, and just to show you how, how grotesque that would be. And we would ooh and ah over the baby, you know, and this, oh, this, this is the greatest gift, and it was one big gross eye. Now, that, you see how silly that is? And that's Paul's point. The body is not one big foot. It's not one big eye. It's many different members, all interconnected, all functioning together, all sharing a mutual life, but sharing their life with the cell or the member that's adjacent to it. You see, that's, that's Paul's point. Now, I think the reason most of us feel insignificant is because we tend to define the church in terms of meeting. You sit out there and you listen in a meeting, and three or four people are up front carrying on the work of the ministry. And you think, well, I can't lead singing like Mark, and I can't uh, give announcements like uh, Dave or lead the service like Dave. And I can't teach like the elders. What can I do? But you see, when we say that, we're saying the whole body is one eye or one member. The truth is, all of you have a gift. We saw that last week. Everyone has a spiritual gift. Everyone has a, a capacity to serve the needs of the body in some way. And that may just, uh, it may involve caring for someone in a time of need, people that, that are ill. Or someone who, like Jerry Knapp, broke his leg and uh, needs somebody maybe to mow his lawn. I don't know if he does or not. Maybe Grace does that these days. But uh, here there are people all uh, throughout the body that have needs, financial needs, needs for employment. Uh, and here's where the body can come to their aid. They rush to meet that need, whatever it is. Maybe there's a need for counsel. Someone is floundering and struggling in their marriage. Well, we don't need to necessarily bring in trained counselors for that sort of thing. I think one of the great errors that's been foisted on the church is this idea that unless you had extensive training in counseling, you can't help anyone. Well, there may be some things that we all need to learn in order to be more sensitive to one another, to learn how to listen, and to learn how to apply Scripture accurately to life. But the idea that you have to have special training to help another believer is is uh, contrary to Scripture. Because in Paul's day, they didn't have special training classes in counseling. They just helped one another. They took the Word, pointed people to the Scriptures, gave encouragement and help, prayed with people, and ministered to them in that way. And that's what Paul is saying. We need to care for one another. Um, and Paul tells us in verse 18, that the placement of those members is just as God desires. There's a perfect place in the body of Christ which God has designed for you. And if we're going to be a healthy body, we all need to be functioning in that place. Now, as I said last week, there's a sort of mystique that's grown up around the idea of gifts that, that makes us believe that uh, it's hard to find your gift. And uh, there needs to be a lot of analysis in order to find the proper place. But my feeling is, when you, get, when you start serving, you start meeting the needs of, of believers around you, then it becomes God's responsibility to get you into the right place in his body. Our responsibility is to start serving, start ministering to the needs of the people uh, around us. 
Then in verses 20 and following, Paul turns from the diversity of the body to its unity. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. Now that uh, sounds a bit complicated, but what Paul is saying is uh, that there are certain portions of our body that we're not particularly proud of. They're unseemly members. They're not very attractive. And our tendency is to bestow honor on them by covering them up. We put clothes on them. This word that's translated bestow is used other places in the New Testament for bestowing, uh, placing clothing on something. So Paul is simply alluding to, to our common experience. If there's some part of our body, like our feet, that we think are not particularly attractive, we cover them up. I don't think any of you are barefooted here this morning. It's just sort of socially uh, uh, right to wear shoes because these aren't particularly beautiful. Some are, some aren't. But uh, Paul's point is that God is like that. He takes the members of the body that seem to be weak and insignificant and he bestows more abundant honor upon them. They have a place. They're just as vital as the people that are up front, the ones that are seen all the time, the ones that are the eyes, the ones that seem to have the most strategic place in the body of Christ. But the truth is, everyone has a significant place which God has appointed for them. Paul says in verse 24 that God has blended together the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, that there should be no dissension, actually, no schism, no competition, uh, no feelings of jealousy or bitterness because someone has a place that you don't have. You see, once we understand that God is the one who places people in positions in the body of Christ, that ought to do away with every bit of jealousy or competition. We see someone who has a gift and he's dynamic and we want that gift. Well, we need to understand that it may not be God's plan that we have that gift. We need to, to accept the position that he's given to us and function there because that's a significant place in the body. And that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I think there are two ways that we violate this principle. The, the first paragraph, 14 through 19, has to do with the problem of insignificance. This paragraph, verses 20 through 26, has to do with the problem of independence. That is, we think we don't need anyone. We, we can get along very well by ourselves. Now, that's, a, that's an attitude that we pick up from the world. Because that's that's a, the world's philosophy. We are what we are by our own self-effort. And uh, that's worldliness. As we've said before, worldliness is not confined to the five or six things that we normally define as, as worldliness. Worldliness is any attitude that the world has that's contrary to the word of God. And this is one. This idea of independence. I can cultivate my life with God all by myself. I don't need anyone else. And that's not true. We do need each other. Now, I see this uh, 
this attitude turning up in two places. One is among pastors. This idea that only the pastor can lead and teach and counsel and administrate and preach is contrary to Scripture. The Bible knows nothing of single-handed leadership. A healthy body is a body where all the members are functioning in this way. And uh, leaders need to magnify the ministries of, of others and encourage them to take their place in the body. But the other place I see this, uh, this uh, see an attitude contrary to this principle is within the body of Christ itself, where we feel that we just don't need anyone else. We can carry on our Christian life very well without help, but we can't. We need to be ministering to one another, not only in formal ways through meetings like this and the, uh, the women's Bible studies and the men's studies, Hewlett Packard and, and Vicks and other, other formal uh, uh, situations like that, but through informal contact with one another through the week. We should be getting together uh, with other believers on a regular basis, maybe having lunch, you men, together during the week, meeting with another man, to pray with him and encourage him and share one another's burdens and fulfill the law of love in that way, to be supportive and encouraging. Or to get on the telephone and call someone that you know is in need and give them a word of encouragement. Uh... A word of scripture that's meant something to you. Or pray with them on the telephone. Or there are, there are people here that uh, we could probably classify as widows and orphans, to use the New Testament terminology, divorcees and their children, who need help from us. And we need them. And you men could, could, uh, could serve them in various ways. Fix their cars, repair things around the house, take their children hunting, fishing. Serve them. Be served by them. See, this is the way a healthy body functions. We care for each other. Uh, Paul says that once we understand how the body works together, there's no division, there's no competition, there's no striving to be something more than you are. There's love. And you begin to reach out to one another. Take care of the needs of, of other members of the body. And if one member suffers, Paul says, all members suffer with it. We've got some people... Uh, going into the hospital uh, this afternoon. Perry Lee is going in uh, to St. Alice for some surgery on his back. That's a member that's suffering. We need to suffer with him and encourage him through this time. And others that are that are in need of employment, they're suffering. We need to suffer with them. And uh, there are homes that are breaking up. Well, we need to suffer with them and give what help and aid we can to these people. And then in verses 27 through 31, Paul continues to, to play again on this idea of the diversity and unity within the body. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you a still more excellent way. 
Now Paul is still stressing the individuality of the body. There are many members, and here he defines the work of those members in terms of various offices, positions to which they've been appointed by God. There are, he says, apostles in the church. These were the those men that were uh, commissioned directly by the Lord who went out to plant churches and to write scripture. And secondly, there are the prophets. In order of, of sequence, the prophets were men who received direct revelation from God and addressed, gave that revelation to the people of God. These two gifts were necessary before the scriptures were written. They had what we call the Old Testament, but they didn't have the writings of the apostles. They didn't have the gospel. And uh, so these revelations were necessary in the early church. That's my conviction that when the scriptures were completed, when all the truth that was necessary was given, then the apostles and prophets faded from the scene. There are no apostles today. There are, there are no prophets unless we define those terms. But there are teachers. Third, Paul says teachers, that is those who take the scriptures and make them clear to people, explain the meaning of scripture to God's people. And there were miracle workers, that is those who were able to do supernatural things as a way of authenticating the ministry of the apostles in the early church as a sign that Messiah had come. There were gifts of healing. Men could lay their hands on the sick and heal them. There was the ministry of help. The word means to come to the aid of people. And you'll notice that that office or that gift is aligned with all these other more showy gifts, gifts of healing and miracles, teaching, the apostolic gifts is the gift of help. That capacity to come to someone's aid when they're in need. Administration. The word is translated administrations here as a word that was used for a pilot of a ship. Someone who guided the ship into the harbor. So it's a gift of leadership, giving guidance. Various kinds of tongues. That is the capacity to speak in a known foreign language, which you have not otherwise learned. We'll talk more about the gift of tongues when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But Paul's point is that not all are apostles. Not all are prophets. Not all are teachers. All do not have the gift of healing. All do not speak with tongues. All do not interpret. There's a diversity of, of ministries and offices and gifts within the church. Everyone's different and diverse. And all of these gifts, he says, are given for one purpose, and that's to build up the body so that it becomes a more loving community of people. They start acting like one body. And that's why Paul says in verse 31, keep on desiring the greater gifts. This was, a, as you know, one of the problems in Corinth. They... They loved their teachers and their leaders and they were impressed with their intelligence and their, their education. And uh, the other leaders within the church and the teachers, Paul says, that's all right, you, you need the various gifts of the body. Allow these men to function. But he says, I'll show you the more excellent way. And that introduces us to chapter 13, which is this great chapter on, on love. And what Paul is doing is showing us that all the gifts of the Spirit are given to the body of Christ so the body of Christ can manifest the fruit of the Spirit. See, the thing that makes the church impressive is not its leadership. No one's going to be impressed by a cold church because of your pastors or your elders or your leaders or our building, as necessary as that is, 
for our choir, for our children's program, for our youth program. That's not going to impress anyone. What will impress the world is love. Jesus said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. And we're living in that era where as wickedness increases, people get colder and colder. And love is a rare commodity. But when the world sees us loving each other, mowing one another's lawn, baking uh, casserole for people in need, uh, meeting the financial needs of people that are out of work, encouraging one another, counseling one another, caring for one another, then they're going to be impressed. And all the gifts of the Spirit are to no end unless they produce love. That's why Paul goes on to say, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have love, I'm nothing. It amounts to nothing. And we need to take this to heart. We are to go into the world as Christ went into the world and minister to the needs of people. And Christ himself was not a divided body. He was one body. And Paul says, we're one body. And we need to learn to love each other in very tangible, concrete ways. One thing to say, I love you, and to hug and kiss each other, and that's great. But that's not the real proof of our love for one another. The real proof is the extent to which we understand that we are all members of one body, we all share a common life, and we start giving ourselves an act of service and love, caring for one another. That's what will impress the world.